The Daily Rios for Friday, May 17th, 2013. Marvel Now Report Card Part 6. Part 6. I gotta get done with this already. <laughs> Actually, after today's episode, after the reviews in today's episode, I'll only need one more episode to round out my look at Marvel Now in its six-month anniversary, which actually was back April 10th, but, you know, it took me a little bit to get through all of these titles. So what's on tap in this episode? We have three pairings today, uh, six titles, three pairings, whether they wanted to be paired or not. We have the two X-Force books, Cable and X-Force and Uncanny X-Force, followed by the two Young Avengers titles with obviously Young Avengers and Avengers Arena, and then the two Spider-related titles, Morbius the Living Vampire and Superior Spider-Man. Now, if you haven't listened to a previous Marvel Now report card episode before, what I do is I review the titles, sometimes with some in-depth discussion, although not a lot. I'll probably just give you a premise. Uh, And then what I do is I give everything a grade. I give each title a grade, which, you know, certainly is appropriate for this time of year as we wind up school and such. Now, these grades aren't meant to compare these titles to other titles within the Marvel Now line um, or elsewhere, you know. I look at each title on its own, and the art, the story, the mixture of, of the two, uh, the Marvel nowness of it, if it hits its own particular goals, etc. That's it. That's it. Just because I gave Thor an A+, doesn't mean I rank it up there with, say, Daredevil Born Again or Marvels, right? Thor is Thor is Thor, and if, so- if something is an A+, it's because of what that particular title did, and if it's a D, it's because of what that particular title did, right? I'm not holding it up against anything else. So, let's take a look at the six titles in today's episode. And I can tell you that nothing went above a B minus. So, yeah. Um, We'll start with Cable and X-Force 1 through 6 and Uncanny X-Force 1 through 3. And I am pairing these two because... As it says in the text page of one of those titles and one of these issues, they said that the Rick Remender, Jerome Pena, and company Uncanny X-Force run was so popular and so good that they just had to split it into two. And, you know, to, to talk about these titles as a combination, they just do not live up to what, what came before. They don't even live up to the worst issue of Rick Remender's run, you know? I So I can't buy into this notion that as good as Rick Remender's run was on Uncanny X-Force, that they felt the need to split the title up because of its popularity. Really what they did is, did is they split it up to, you know, increase the line, to increase the brand. And uh, it's unfortunate because I think both books suffer because of it. Um, Cable and X-Force... I read the six first six issues of this because that's all that was out uh, when Marvel Now hit its six-month anniversary, just six issues of Cable and X-Force. And this is by Dennis Hopeless and Salvador LaRocca, uh, Salvador doing the artwork on all six issues. And it's Dennis Hopeless as the writer. He uses a narrative 
where where time jumps all over the place and you're learning little bits of information in the first four issues that sets up why this group is back together with Cable, uh, a new premise. He is having these headaches and he starts having visions and they're visions of the future, so he brings this team together because they're the only ones who can save humanity with whatever these visions are. And it's the team of Cable and Domino and Forge and Colossus and Dr. Nemesis and Cable's uh, daughter Hope. And really what happens in this first four issues is that events unfold and it sets Cable and X-Force up as wanted fugitives. They even go up against Uncanny Avengers at one point. But... I don't know. I think that storytelling trick of, of jumping back and forth in time, so showing us something uh, wh which they'll call, they'll label as now, and they'll give us a scene, and then what they'll do is they'll jump back um, to three hours earlier, or six hours earlier, or five days earlier, and they'll show you how they get to that scene. It's just a, it's a writing tool that is happening, happening too much across the Marvel Now relaunch. I mean, as I've read all these issues over, I don't know, 70, 80 issues or whatever it's been, I'm feeling that pattern way too often. It's something that is made popular because of movies and TV is doing it now. And um, it just feels like too much, especially when you see it um, across a wide path of titles. And when it's not done well, it just feels flat. Um... The main premise of these four issues that gets them to be wanted fugitives deals with this strange Chick-fil-A metaphor, Chick-fil-A and current events metaphor with, you know, Chick-fil-A and gay mar or, or uh, gays and homosexuals and lesbians. And, and in the Marvel Universe, it's something called Eat More, and it has to do about with mutants. And, and it's this weird metaphor that doesn't really work. And suddenly you get this scene with the team fighting these huge blobs of humans and Dr. Nemesis is making bombs out of chicken and you just go, what the fuck am I reading? <laughs> it feels far too action movie script-like, li very little on character development, heavy on posing and, and uh, stock responses and cliche reactions and funny one-liners and I could care less about the workers uh, that got killed during this first initial mission that they had, and suddenly Colossus is anguishing over them, and why did they have to die, but who cares? They weren't really developed in the first place, and um, uh, the, the whole entire world is making it out to be this national tragedy, and, and Cable and X-Force are now fugitives, and it, the weight of it is, I find, unbelievable. I just, I just don't. I think the premise of it just is not um, pulling me in. Uh, then we get a few one-off issues, and in one of them, Colossus and Domino hook up, and I'm just not a fan of that. I mean, how many... Domino's like Wolverine or, or Tony Stark. She suddenly has slept with the entire mutant uh, cast of characters, and I, I just don't like it. Um, the artwork I'm not a fan of... I, I've seen better Salvador LaRocca artwork. I think the coloring is flat and muddy and too one-tone. It's it's too one-palette, very little variation, and it's something I've I've come to experience with Frank Diarmada's art color artwork. I I don't like it. I don't like it, and and I think it's starting to put me off reading those comics that he's on, and that's that shouldn't be not not for from a color artist. 
Um, you know, back to the artwork, I think it's a little bit uninspired, it's a little bit confusing here and there. Uh, I know there are, are listeners and, and people online who are reading it and enjoying it for what it is, but I, I really can't say much more about it, and I'm, I'm hitting this title for the first time in doing these Marvel Now Report Card episodes with an F. This is the first F I'm handing out for Marvel Now. I, um, I'm done. I, I just, I'm not enjoying it, and I think it's not a great comic, and um, it's far too choppy and um, mediocre for me to continue. So, there you go. Uh, all right, then we go to Uncanny X-Force 1 through 3. Uh, Sam Humphreys and Ron Gar- is the writer, Ron Garney on the artwork. I like the artwork a little bit more than I did Cable and X-Force. Um, I like the lineup a lot more. It's Psylocke and Storm and Puck from Alpha Flight. Um, we also have, um, in the background, we have Phantom X and the female Phantom X known as Cluster. And we also have Spiral. Um, this takes place six months after Rick Remender's run on Uncanny X-Force. And Psylocke is trying to acclimate to being at the school that Wolverine is the headmaster of. But she just can't, so he sends her out, not quite on a mission, but just sends her out to go do this thing. And she eventually meets up with Puck, because there's there are these, what he thinks to be drugs, out on the street, and it turns out to be a little mutant girl that Spiral is taking care of, and Spiral is the drug dealer. And it's not really drugs, it's just that this little girl sends out these psychic admissions and makes everybody feel good and dance like crazy and they're spiral and she's living it up and she doesn't quite feel like the spiral that I know but um and then you throw in Bishop who has returned from wherever it was he was and he's kind of crazy and I think he's possessed by the demon bear but I don't know if that's exactly the demon bear and he's now going after the girl and it becomes this cat and mouse chase and uh, I only read three issues so I haven't read where this all wraps up but having said that, it's another it's another book that just feels by the numbers and, and pedestrian and nothing sort of standing out. Um, again, more reactions than action, more stock characterization than, than really internalizing. I mean, I think the in Uncanny X Force number one with Rick Remender and uh, Jerome Pena. There was this amazing scene between Psylocke and Warren Worthington that build more, built more character within those two, not only between them, but in, within their individual selves, than all three issues of this run here. I mean, just one scene I learned more about Psylocke and her motivations and the stakes and all that than I did in all three issues here. And... Um, that's saying a lot. So I couldn't really get a lot of excitement out of this book after three issues. Um, as I said, I do like the artwork a little more. I like the lineup. So I'm not going to give this one F. I'll give it a D. Uh, I may finish out the story. I don't know if I'll continue on with it after that. Cable and X-Force, I'm definitely not reading anymore. Uncanny X-Force, I'll give it another issue just because I want to wrap up the story arc. But beyond that, I may follow I may follow this in reviews and just see what people are saying, but this doesn't feel like a book that's really pushing the narrative, the mutant narrative, in ways that other X, uh, X-Men titles are. So 
There you go. Cable on X-Force, F, Uncanny X-Force, D. So we jump to two more Avengers titles, Avengers Arena. I read seven issues of this, and Young Avengers 1 through 3. Now, Avengers Arena is written by Dennis Hopeless, who also wrote Cable and the X-Force. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, there's some com comparisons to be made there, I suppose. Kev Walker on the art, and Alessandro Vitti uh, doing the art for the fill-in issues um, that Kev Walker isn't able to do. So, Avengers Arena, the first seven issues, I, I remember initially giving it uh, not a glowing review with the first or second issue or so, but having read seven issues now, I actually like it. It started out slow. First issue was fine. It felt uh, as a nice standard premise. Second issue was a bit of a departure, felt a little clunky with its spotlight on the younger uh, Riker daughter, uh, now known as Death Locket. Um, but the remaining issues found its groove, and the first story arc turned out fairly well. I think this plays to um, maybe what what we might see from Dennis Hopeless in, 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 as a writer, you know. Um, the premise of this is that Arcade, and we find out his backstory in issue 7, um, he was about ready to give it all in and, and throw it all in and just not be a villain anymore. And, um, you know, he found motivation to gather up uh, heroes, young heroes across the Marvel Universe, mo mainly from Avengers Academy, uh, the Runaways book, and uh, what's called the Braddock Academy, which was created for this series. And it's uh, Captain Britain over in England, uh, basically starting a, a an Xavier school for uh, characters over in Britain. So he Arcade pulls all these young heroes and he has them uh, duke it out within 30 days. They have either have to live or die in a very Hunger Games Battle Royale setting. And that's the premise. And that's really all you need to know. You start to learn more about the characters as each issue goes on. And some of them might be your favorites, you know, maybe you're a Dark Hawk fan, or like me, when I found out from someone on Twitter that uh, Cammy from um, the Drax miniseries that led into eventually Thanos and Anni Annihilation, the first Annihilation event, little Cammy is in it, and I always liked her. She's not written quite the same the way Keith Giffen or uh, someone else might write her, but she's in it, and that's cool. Nico from uh, Runaways is in it. Um, uh, Hazmat from Avengers Academy. And a whole bunch of other characters that you might be more familiar with than I am. Uh, and I have to say, he's doing a real good job of exploring them and presenting them to a reader who maybe, maybe doesn't know them well enough. And know the idea and the premise. They, they are no way, shape, or form original. But I, I do. I kind of, I kind of like it. Now it's very obvious when you create characters for this book that you can make them do whatever you want, which is the case with the Braddock Academy. You know, they're interesting. They're really interesting to a degree because they have some legacy here and there. There's a character called Bloodstone, and um, you know, within the Marvel Universe, they're they're they are monster hunters. So there's this new young Bloodstone. It's kind of cool. Uh, so you can make them fit whatever role you want them to fit. And it winds up, by issue six, giving the reader what we come to expect with a book like this, right? If they're going to be 
killing each other and they're and it's a game well you got to see some deaths and you got to see somebody take somebody out and that's what happens and it happens in a um if not necessarily in a surprise it, it it's good i like it so i'm giving this one a b minus i'm along for the ride um you know figuring out the why you know why all this is happening isn't as much isn't as much fun as seeing the different sides go at it I'm not exactly sure how much longer you can really play this out. How long of a series can this really go? Uh, but that's not a factor in the grade. Um, it's, uh, it's a B- because I'm enjoying it, and I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would out of the first issue. And the artwork is decent. I like Kev Walker. Um, he's doing a good job, I think. And uh, the Alessandro Vitti uh, fill-ins, they feel, both feel very different. The second one, the one that is the arcade origin story, or not origin story, but backstory to all of this title, has a little bit of a Scott Collins flair to it, whereas the first time you see Alessandro Vitti do a fill-in earlier on in the run, there's uh, a quite a different feel to it. I, I hesitate to say a manga feel, but it's there. So, B- minus for Avengers, and I will continue to read this. Um, if It has a danger of maybe stretching out too far. But uh, I'm enjoying it. And then we get to Young Avengers, the first three issues. This is Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey, Mike Norton, and company. Kieran Gillen on Iron Man, just not impressed with at all. So I know the first issue of Young Avengers that I read, I really thought it was not new reader friendly. Um, you know, I certainly have um, some familiarity with these characters. But the, in that first issue, he barely names certain characters, and he brings up other characters that uh, he doesn't make any connection to, you know, doesn't give them um, who they are in relation to the characters that we're reading. Um, some of the interconnections are taken for granted that we should know this stuff, and it feels like this is episode four of season two rather than being episode one of season one. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the Marvel nowness of it, it's it's a complete... It, it, to me, it just doesn't work. Now, um, I know people are enjoying it. I think this... I can't even really give a premise of it. it. It's really just one thing that Kieran Gillen said in the text pages. He said, you know, the original Young Avengers series with Alan Heimberg and Jim Chung was an exploration of these characters... Um, when they are 16 and who they are in a world of superheroes and in a, in a world where they are the next legacy or the next generation of superheroes. And he wants to tell a story with these characters as if they are 18 and what it means to be 18 and, and push that narrative a little further. So we get characters like Hulkling and Wiccan and young Loki and Kate Bishop, Hawkeye and um, Novar, Marvel Boy and Miss America Chavez, or Chavez America, whatever the hell her name is. Um, and I, I don't know if I missed anybody. And we just get them uh, in a story where Wiccan decides to do something for his boyfriend, Hulkling, and decides to see if he can look at an alternate dimension, or all kinds of alternate dimensions, and save uh, Hulkling's mother before she gets killed, and pull her out, and present her and, you know, maybe save her and, and Hulkling won't feel so bad. So he does that, and but because he does that and because young Loki is is looking on in the wings and almost tries to negate the spell, suddenly all of their parents are back and they're all bad and they have to go up against him. And uh, 
it goes from there. I really think the storytelling is really light, and it it almost feels to me as I read it that it's n the plot isn't what isn't what what's really important to Karen Gillan. It's getting from one witty joke to the next pop culture reference to the next pop culture reference, and those are what what he really wants to push. You know, it's almost as if he's writing it for a subset of readers. Um, so that they feel that this book is for them. There's a Game of Thrones reference that completely falls flat because, one, I don't know the book and I don't know the TV show, and there's nothing in the scene to help me out with it in any way. You know, just because I'm into comics doesn't mean I devour every part of geekdom that's out there, right? So the writing suddenly becomes a checklist, and it feels like it be it's a checklist of what makes fans freak out, right? Let me get the Game of Thrones reference, check. Let me get the Hobbit reference, check. Let me put in a Tumblr reference, check. A funny joke about bacon, check, you know? And it just makes me go, all right, this is so obvious who you're pandering this to, and I, it just falls flat. It completely falls flat. I thought the first issue was eh. The second issue was eh. Even more eh. The third issue was a little bit better. Um, and I only read the first three because that's all that was out at the time of the six-month anniversary. So maybe it'll pick up from there. Uh, the artwork, outside of a few double-page spreads that I that are kind of creative, I think the rest feels very flat and empty. Um, it, almost like the writing, it's as... It's as if the team is only allowed one cool visual moment in each book, and the rest is just a way to get there. You know, in in the first issue, the opening Kate Bishop Marvel Boy Skull Scrolls double page fight scene was cool, and then the rest of it not so much. And um, there was that other issue, might have been the second issue, where uh, Wiccan gets thrown into this box of a prison, but it's really just an empty panel, and he's saved by Loki, and Loki is walking in between the gutters and pulling Wiccan out of the panel, and then they go save Hulkling. That's cool, it was creative, it was a great use of space and page and, and the way we look at comics, but then the rest of it, very little backgrounds and, and just big panels of nothing in it and not a lot of detail, and it just feels flat. So it feels, again, like they're treading water just to hit the big moments that um, everybody always talks about. But that's not enough for me. One moment in, an, in a book. That's just not enough. Not when I'm... Okay, so I said I wasn't comparing it to other comics, but I am going to compare it for a second here. When you look at what Stuart Eminen is doing in those first couple issues of um, All New X-Men, and you get these great double-page splashes and this great creative use of the page, and he does it several times throughout the issue, when you just do it once... It's not enough for me, especially, again, Kieran Gillen goes in the text pages, says that he's trying to create superheroics as a way to, to show, or I should say, exploring superheroics the same way you would you would music, and the highs and lows, and the ins and outs, and the themes and um, um, motifs going in and out. Well, then, you need to do that more than once in one issue, you know? It just, otherwise, it's not enough. It's just not enough. So, I see what it wants to be. I see what it's trying to be. I know it has a connection with some readers. I just feel it should be better. I, 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 for all the accolades it's getting, it should be better. Um, again, whether you like it or not, really, to me, has never been my approach to determine quality. And I do see potential here. It just feels really light right now. So I'm giving this a C.
And finally, let's go to the last two. We have Morbius the Living Vampire 1 through 3 and Superior Spider-Man 1 through 6. Now, Morbius, it's a D plus, C minus. The artwork isn't horrible by Richard Elson. It has a nice Tom Grummet feel, which I, I think I might have said in the first issue review that I did of it. And I like Tom Grummet. I, I, I like the artwork. It's okay. But the overall story, Joe Keating's story of it, I just don't care. I think it's especially bad when the covers are the most interesting part of these books. Three issues, and I sit there and I go, why am I reading this? Well, I know why I'm reading it. I'm reading it because I want to review it on the, on the episode. But otherwise, I'm like, why am I reading this? I don't have anything to say about Morbius 1 through 3. It's a D plus C minus. It's, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Um, Spider-Man... Uh, Superior Spider-Man 1 through 6. Uh, this is by Dan Slott. Three issues by Ryan Stegman. Uh, a couple issues by uh, Giuseppe Camincoli. And then one issue by Umberto Ramos. And uh, the premise here, which I'm sure you've heard, Doc Ock is in Peter Parker's body and mayhem is uh, ensues. You know, he wants to be a superior Spider-Man. Now, he is doing that. I have to give Dan Slott that. He is showing new ways of being a Spider-Man and new things, new ways to show the genius of Doc Ock and Peter Parker. And uh, that's working in its favor. I said this before when I did a review of it, you know, weeks ago. This is probably the most all-ages book I've read in a long time. When somebody says, you know, it needs to be an all-ages book for everybody, kids and adults, this is it. This is the perfect example of a story that I think if I was reading when I was 12 to 12, 13, 14, I would super, super dig it. And yet, you know, as an adult, I don't think it's talking down to me as a reader. Um, it has a very comic book feel to it. And um, that's a plus. That is definitely a plus. Now, having said that, I, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like I want to read it. It, it, it's, it's not that the story repeats itself, issue after issue. You know, we find out that Peter Parker's conscience, or or so we believe, is still within Doc's head, and Doc can access Peter's memories, and Peter can access Doc's memories, and um, he's trying to make sure Doc is on the up and up. Doc Ock is on the up and up, and um. Uh, there's a slow slip that Doc Ock is encountering because he's starting to beat up villains and he maybe even killed one of them and really hurt another duo um, so much that the Avengers are now thinking maybe they should step in and see what's going on with Spider-Man. And some of that narrative is interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, am I just not a big enough Spider-Man fan to enjoy it? Um... I have no connection to it. I have, and, and I know I'm, you don't need a connection to this kind of stuff, but it's just another one of those books that I'm thinking, why am I reading this, right? Um, I, it could be maybe because I never thought of Doc Ock as a major villain. I know he is. I'm not saying he's not, but to me, he just came across, across as a goof, and um, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I think the parts that I enjoy the most are like when Doc Ock finds out that Peter Parker never finished his doctorate, so he's going to go and do that. That to me is interesting, you know, playing around with Peter Parker's life. 
When Doc Ock goes after Mary Jane, I don't care about that. When Doc Ock tries to care about Aunt May, I don't really care about that. Um, when he beats up the villains, you know, we've seen it now a couple times, and he's friend on friendlier terms with J. Jonah Jameson. Okay, fine. I don't know. I, so it's hard. It's hard. I don't know where to grip onto this book. Um, I'm giving it a C because of that, um, because I don't love it. I don't hate it, but I don't want to read it, right? Um, I do have to take Dan Slott to task on one thing. Um, J. Jonah Jameson, as mayor of New York, creates a spidey signal, very much in the way that the bat signal is is out is used. And Doc Ock comes and destroys it right away and says, oh, that's great, you know, go put up a signal so that all my villains know where I'm at. And he calls it stupid. And, you know, you know instinctively it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a knock at Bat, the Batman universe and the bat signal and all that. Not, not, a, not a real negative knock, just a little dig, a little facetious dig. And, but you want to go, okay, so you're going to knock another very comic book iconic thing and yet, you're going to have Doc Ock send out these spiders so they so that they can look all across, uh, you know, the the city, and use facial recognition so that you can capture a villain. And yet, that's all. And have somebody say, "Hey, Doc," or "Hey, Spider Man," that's too much power for one man to have. Clearly ripped off from Dark Knight and the use of cell, cell phone signals to survey a large mass area, right? And Morgan Freeman is like, you know, hey, you can't do that. Um, you know, Dan Slott uses Ravencroft, which is an asylum in the Marvel Universe, very similar to Arkham Asylum. So there's so many things that, you know, if you're going to make a comment on one thing, but yet play around with another, you know, you're it's a comic book. The Bat Signal is part of the comic book universe just as Spider-Man's webs are, or whatever else, or the Spider-Mobile, which is just as ridiculous, you know? So, I thought that was kind of bullshit. Um, I also was surprised, after reading six issues, I've seen a lot of support and a lot of uh, complimentary things being said about Ryan Stegman on the artwork uh, for Superior Spider-Man. And I think I said in the first issue of Superior Spider-Man, the review that I gave that I thought it was fine, I've seen better. It wasn't anything that really knocked me over. Um, but he's only done the artwork for the first three issues, and the last three issues, in fact, the and then I looked ahead, out of nine issues, Ryan Segman only does four issues, and then there's five issues of other artists. So he is not the main artist on this book. So people who say that he's killing it on Superior Spider-Man, maybe they're just not reading it. I, I don't get it. He's, he did three issues, and then uh, issues four, five, and six are not Ryan Stegman. I think seven and eight are also not Ryan Stegman, and we get Ryan Stegman back on issue nine. So they're either lying, and they haven't read it, and they think that he's drawing every issue, but guess what? He's not. And this Ryan Stegman, I, you know, I sometimes like his stuff. I'm, I'm not trying to say anything. All I'm trying to say is it just feels weird to credit Ryan Stegman as the main artist for Superior Spider-Man when he's only done four issues out of nine. And he had a five-issue break between... Uh, the third issue he did and the fourth issue he did. So, anyway. Um, yeah, it's a C. Um, I don't know how much more I'll be reading of this. And I don't know if I'm really all that interested in figuring out what happens or, or playing along with it. I'll wait until the next major Spider-Man turning point when all of this gets undone. And I'll pick it up then or at least flip through it and see what's going on. So there you go. Cable and X-Force gets the Marvel Now report cards first F, and then we have Uncanny X-Force, 
which is a D. We have Avengers Arena, which is a B minus. Young Avengers, which is a C. We have Morbius, which is a D plus, C minus. Spider-Man, a flat C. And uh, that is it for Marvel Now Report Card Part 6. Whenever I get to the final Marvel Now Report Card, I will take a look at Avengers, New Avengers, and Secret Avengers. I guess I'm also going to have to do Deadpool, even though I've been holding it off for so long. And uh, I won't be doing Daredevil, and I won't be doing Marvel Now Point 1, because I already did Marvel Now Point 1, and it's no sense going over that one again. Uh, but then that'll be it. I'll be all caught up with Marvel Now in the six-month anniversary. And then I won't have to talk about Marvel Now to this extent anymore. So there you go. Let me know what you think, Peter at thedailyreels.com, or leave a comment on the episode thread. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.